Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello. Welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. And I'm Michael McMullen. First thing to say is, this is the last episode of the series. I say series, it makes it sound like Game of Thrones. Um, it's not. We're going to take a little break for a few weeks. And if you heard last week's show, you'll be saying it's about time. But uh, we, we've saved the best for last. We thought, what can we do to go out on a high? And we thought, who should we call? There's only one man. There's only one man. Regular listeners will probably already know who it is. It is, of course, the one and only Fergal O'Brien. Fergal, welcome. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for coming on. Um, how are you, first of all? Yeah, very good, thanks. Uh, been back practicing the last few weeks after a good break over the summer. And obviously uh, a few weeks now away from the Championship League, so looking forward to another season. Yeah, and we were just chatting before we started. You, 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 you're you, allowed to practice in the club, but the club isn't open. So you're, it's kind of a bit of an eerie atmosphere there. It's just you and the table. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think, don't think the club's probably going to reopen until August. I think it can't open until July anyway with the restrictions, but I think they're probably going to leave it till August. So it's been good in the sense, when you, certainly if you're practicing on your own for concentration, getting your head down. But as I said, when you're having your lunch or stopping for a few minutes, a cup of tea, you know, I like normally going out to the counter and talking about a rubbish to somebody at the counter or whatever. So that's been a little bit uh, restrictive. But other than that, no grand. This is lucky to be able to play and obviously have tournaments then to be getting ready for. Well, for some reason, Fergal, your name comes up a lot on this podcast. Now, I don't know whether that says more about you or us. I'm not sure. But we're delighted to have All you on. Really. We're, we're delighted to have you on. And uh, it's an anniversary for you, of course, because it's 30 years since you turned professional. There's a lot of talk about the class of 92 in snooker, understandably, because that's when Ronnie O'Sullivan, Mark Williams, John Higgins turned pro. I think, though, there's a misconception. I think some people think that's when the game went open. And we'll talk about what going open means in a minute. It's actually 91. Um, and that's when you turned pro. And by my reckoning, there's only four of you still on the tour who've been on the tour unbroken since that time. There's yourself, Mark King, Mark Davis and Anthony Hamilton. If I've left anyone out, I apologise. That's quite something, isn't it? I mean, you must be proud of that. Yeah, I suppose you don't really think of it that too much until it's kind of brought up. I suppose when you think of that, uh, exactly as I said, if you were starting off your career and somebody said, look, you're going to have at least 30 years in a row unbroken, 
you know, you, you'd be delighted with delighted with that. So uh, hopefully there's a few more I can manage. Yeah, I was talking, Fogel, to uh, to Mark Davis, who Dave mentioned there. I've done a piece with him for the magazine because obviously he's at that 30-year level as well. And I was discussing with him why he thinks it is that he's managed to stay on the tour unbroken for so long. And we sort of came to the conclusion that maybe a lot of it is down to the attitude he's taken, that he's never been one to complain about things. He'll speak up if something needs to be said. But generally, for him, the main thing is he just loves the opportunity to play and to compete. And he's very grateful for that sort of life. And he thinks that might be one of the reasons why he's lasted so long. Now, you would probably say all of those things about you as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. He said, yeah, the, the, it said the, love, the love of the game would be strong. So obviously, Mark and other players at certain times, yeah, you, I don't yourself your voice opinions. If you think the game can be improved or if you, think, if you think there's things really wrong with the game you're not happy about, but that doesn't change your core views or feelings on the game. You know, and it still certainly applies for me obviously playing snicker for 30 years, if you give me a choice of doing anything in the world, I'd still pick playing snooker. And so long as you have that, that covers a multitude. So as I always said with snooker, and it does be bad days and dark days, but a bad day playing snooker or being a professional snooker player is, is certainly still for me better than doing something else. Now at some point, hopefully many years away, that will change. But uh, that love of the game, that, that appreciation and gratitude, so I'm grateful to be able to play, to have the opportunity. And as so long as you keep that enthusiasm, I think that's that's the the main thing. The um, I said the only thing with when you get a bit older, uh, the the hardest part is is that you know yourself you're 49, or when you forget about it, people remind you. Like if I was 29 and Mark Davis is 29, you probably wouldn't be getting questions like, "Well, what are you going to do when your career finishes?" And those, you know. So just you tend to uh, look a bit. If you start, if, you know, I think it was Andre Agassi made a great quote. He said, if you're thinking about the end, it is the end. And as much as possible, I've tried to keep focused on playing and, max, you know, squeeze everything I can out of my playing career. And then when that's over, you know, look at other options. Of course, in the back of your mind, you have little ideas what you'd like to do. But still, if you gave me a choice of being any or doing any job, I'd still would choose snooker. And obviously, Mark and Anthony Hamilton are still of the same thing. Yeah. And, and you will get to a stage. So, Dave, I was just going to pick yeah. up on that just, just briefly. Um, you mentioned that you're 49 now, Ferg. And so by the end of this coming season, you will have played professional snooker in your teens, 20s, 30s, 40s and 50s, which is an amazing accomplishment in itself. But you mentioned there that you want to squeeze as much out of your career as you can. A lot of players who've been around as long as you, if they were to eventually drop off the tour, probably wouldn't go to Q school. But I suspect you would be someone be there first morning nine o'clock with your queue you know banging on the doors to get in and play in the queue school what, what do you think i think i probably would <laughs> <laughs> and like, even going back a year or two again because it was only in the year before last i won my match to i beat luca Brassell, but if i had mm. lost to him in the worlds i would have had to go to queue school as far as but it was in my head look if i don't if i don't make it i will go to queue school and i think that probably helps in some way if maybe take slightly take the pressure off that look that it's you know if you have a if you had a poor season there still is another option as such but obviously so then the back of the mind you might take some comfort maybe from that but obviously starting any season as much as you can you want to be optimistic and as I said if you were even obviously my ranking is quite low but again if I was 29 you probably wouldn't even be mentioned in Q school because you'd be like or retirement because you'd be like well 
you know, what's your plans for this season and getting into the 64 and making progress over the years. But, you know, I understand the question, but I'd certainly probably, probably would give Q School one go anyway, but unless, you know, you got, uh, you know, somehow a better option. So, you know, um, my plans are to avoid Q School. I mentioned the game going open. It used to be a bit of a closed shop. I mean, in the early days, you had to be invited. Your face had to fit. Then eventually there were things like the Pro Ticket Series. And John Spencer was the chairman. And they had the idea, to, mainly, I think, motivated by the fact they knew they could make money from it, to, to basically just open it up to whoever could, could afford to play and wanted to play. And, of course, there were hundreds of people who did. But when that started 30 years ago, it wasn't like the professional game you would have seen watching on TV. It wasn't glitzy arenas and so on. You had to start right at the bottom, obviously. And you, you played, I think I'm right in saying, Fergal, in clubs initially to try and get, <coughs> get to the next stage, you know, the qualifying venue, and then eventually try and get to the, the main venue. Yeah, exactly. There was about, like, um, there was 10 tournaments, and over about a 10-week period, uh, you either played in a club in Bolton, Aldershot, and Sheffield. So you'd literally be going from one to the other. So I remember even from Sheffield leaving Sheffield or Bolton and getting the National Express train at midnight. You know, I was living in Ilford at that stage. You might arrive in Ilford early in the morning, you know, have a day or two, and then you're on to somewhere else. So when you look back, in a sense, it was tough, but I loved doing it. You were still enjoying it and excited because it was all so new and start. And you were so grateful to have any opportunity. And even if you did win four or five matches to qualify, that just got you, I think, to maybe the last... 192 or so to, to Trenton Gardens. So then you could win four or five and you'd have to probably win another four in Trenton Gardens to get to the last 32 of, I don't know, maybe the American Title Credit Classic or something. So to get on TV, but you were just kind of working away. But there was a lot of good players and they said there was probably a generation each year in the old ticket, only maybe eight to ten players were coming through. But there's certainly a couple of hundred nearly good enough to at least have a chance. And that's what they did by opening up now. I don't know, probably about 500 or so. And there's probably one or 200 of those probably were more maybe doing it to say they played professionally, but they weren't really engaged. But I mean, there's certainly a good two, 300 were very, we're winning the pro-ams, you know, and very good. And probably certainly the top 60 amateurs were probably better than the bottom 60 professionals at that time without being disrespectful to them. They were like maybe older, played at a, uh, an older, steadier, uh, safety kind of game, and the new wave was just coming through. And there's so many of them. So, um, but um, and then it was the, the next year. Then it went, of course, to Norwich Castle. So then you could be there for three or four months. I think the first year I was there, I kind of played at one match, wherever way I was kind of seated at one match a week. And then when you if you won those, you came back, and then you'd have a run. And there was other times I played every three days, but I was basically there from May till September. Yeah. So that was, oh. I, I did well in Blackpool, so it was good. But you've seen some, you know, I'm literally going to say breaking some people, like good players, good people. Yeah. But if you got on a bad run, it was hard kind of to get out because the matches were coming thick and fast. And your whole season was gone. It wasn't like a bad week of qualifiers and you could regroup. A bad June or July, and that was you buried for the year. You know, so it, it was difficult. Yeah. And you look back at those players who came into the game, Fergal, some of them were actually... Within the world of snooker, very big stars already before they'd even turned pro. Peter Ebden was one example. Now, obviously, he did go on and, in fact, was the only one of that year's intake who ever became world champion so far. 
But then you look at other players like Stefan Mazrosis, who was a huge amateur name and just made very little impact in the pro game, apart from one win against Ebden, actually, at the Crucible. Now, you weren't coming from that background. You, you hadn't sort of won big world and European amateur titles and that. And yet, as early as your second season, you beat Steve Davis in a ranking event. Your third season, you beat Stephen Hendry at Goffs uh, and played unbelievably well. It seemed to me that the professional game it seemed to come easier to you than the amateur game, which is an unusual thing. Um, I suppose, yeah, my, my amateur record wasn't something like I, ne- I never won the Irish amateurs. I never mm. won another 16 under 19 title. I didn't play in the European or World Championships for Ireland. And there were certainly players around that time you would have earmarked who probably had better talent than me. And again, around that time in the scene, I actually heard people say, whatever about so-and-so, so-and-so, Fergal O'Brien will not make it. And being the stubborn bugger that I am, that in a sense just drove me. So there was players at 16, 17, I was behind. But because of my attitude and basically work ethic, when we got to 19, 20, I was maybe better than them. And then even, there was probably that realisation when he went to England. Because then coming from Ireland, it was a very much, um, as I said, I was number two in Ireland before I went to Ilford. But that club in Ilford, I was probably about the 10th best player in that one club, let alone all the other hundreds of clubs there was in, you know, throughout, apart from London. So you're coming from a very small uh, pond, big fish, small pond. And um, so it was only when you grew up, they, they, like I remember panicking when I was hit 15 because I hadn't had a century break. And you're reading about the likes of Ronnie O'Sullivan and Chris Scanlon had had them at 10. And, you know, and then you read about, I said, the likes of Stefan Rosas and, Brian Morgan, Peter Ebden, Anthony Hamilton. These are like gods to me. So the first time you've seen them, first time, just watching them was amazing. But as you kind of got to play against them, that was probably a realisation for me. Was I was like, well, if I'm, I'm as good as them or can certainly compete. Or even if they're better than me now, you know, I could, in a couple of years, I can catch up. I'll just keep working and working. And that's kind of it. I kept that good work ethic. So they were better than me, but it wasn't... Uh, it was close enough that through hard work and dedication, you could close that gap. And again, maybe maybe they not everybody in Blackpool at that time had the same application I did. But yeah, that was a bit of a challenge because you were going over, you didn't know whether you were good enough. Because I said, just because you were number two in Ireland, as I said, when you got to Ilford, there was players better and a good bit better than you. Can you remember? I think I know the answer, but I wonder if it's right because I looked on Q Tracker. Can you remember your first match as a professional? God, I should know that. Um, the obviously 19th of May. God, I'm amazed at top four, after forgetting that name. That's a that's a brain star. Uh, I won five one. <laughs> okay, well, it's not the match. It's not the match I looked up then. I I I because I on key track it's not. They've got the sort of um, the tournaments in order of the final. Gary Th- Gary Thomas. Okay, we'll take. Well, I, as I say, they've got the, the the order of the tournaments is the order of the final stages. So they got the Dubai Classic first, but I didn't know whether that was the first event you played in. If, no, I don't think I, I don't think it was that way. I, I, I seem to remember, and I don't know why they would do this because you know all the qualifiers have been played together. But I think you, you're right. I think that they played the qualifiers in a different sequence. Mm. To then the final stages themselves. So Gary Thomas five one. Uh, do yeah. you remember anything about the match in terms of how you played? I suppose you were just happy just to be finally there as a professional, were you? Yeah, yeah exactly. I remember. Yeah, since playing it was a big deal. First match as a professional. 
And then I remember, I think maybe that same day or later that day, I played, or the next day I played my second match. And I clearly kind of remember winning my second match and ringing my dad, you know, on the, on the payphone outside. And like, I was buzzing, he was buzzing. You're a bit like, this is fantastic. <laughs> now, I think I lost next one to Paul McPhillips. It was a good, again, good sky sandwich. And to be fair, certainly then he was probably a better player than I was, more hardened from that scene. But, you know, yeah, I, I did, certainly did enough. I, did, I won enough matches in the first year, certainly to give you encouragement. And then also the, the, the big thing for me was, what you did qualifiers for two or three years, more or less two or three, sorry, months. The other eight, nine months, I was in Ilford. So day in, day out, I was, well, Eugene News was there first. And you were trying to get game with him or Ken and again and Ronnie O'Sullivan ideally. And again, if they weren't there, because they were probably playing in, you know, the Jew looks British Open or something, the tables <laughs> were free. So then Mark King, Chris Brooks, Stuart Reardon, Stuart Parnell, and a few others, even from Ireland, great amateurs. We were literally playing best of sevens from 10 in the morning. And it was winter stays on. So if you lost at 10 in the morning, the best of seven, against the like of a Mark King, you wouldn't get on the main tables maybe till four o'clock that day, if at all, because I could be playing Mark King and there's two lads waiting to play the winner and then the winner and the winner. So firstly, that made you very, very competitive because at 10 in the morning for my day's practice, the reason why I was in England was to practice with these players. So if I lost at 10 in the morning, I was going down the hall to play on my own. So that, that hunger kind of forced, the standard was so, was so good. Nick Terry was there, like real good players. And I said, most of them were better than me anyway. So, you know, and, and that's what I would do. I, I could play those lads three, four, five best of sevens a day. And then there was plenty, plenty of time. I'd have a bit of dinner. And at six o'clock, I'd have two or three hours on my own. Be back there first thing, 10 o'clock, going again. So that's where the real development in my game came. Probably even more than the match play in playing tournaments. You know, within, within a year, I probably went up 14, 21 points. So by the time I went back to Blackpool, I was, I was confident, and, and all these fellas who were big names to me, I'd seen, I'd seen in pro arms, or I'd played them, or I'd beaten them, and they weren't so good, if you know what I mean, or, or I could say. And you, you've kept up that reputation, Fergal, for for practice all the way through your career. You've always put massive hours in. Now, is that a case that you just see it as what you have to do to achieve what you still want to achieve in the game? Or do you actually really enjoy the practice that much? Or is it maybe a bit of both of those things? Well, both. I've always loved it because I always hear fellas saying, like, oh, after playing on my own for an hour or two, I got bored. But, you know, I was always able to play for six hours on my own. I'd still be going home thinking, oh, well, I never practiced this or that. Or, you know, I'd still, like, you know, with a week to prepare if I was playing on my own, I'd still kind of, I'd never go into a club and think, what am I going to practice today? I would have thought about it, you know, a day or two before and the night before, and I know what I'm going to do and certain work on certain shots or routines. Um, so yeah, I think I think that's that certainly served me well, um, you know, over the years throughout my career. But there's definitely been, I would say that there's been certain times maybe I practice maybe a little bit too much, maybe too close to a tournament, and a little bit of um, not not quite burnout, but just not as mentally sharp. So now, certainly over the years, my nearly number one goal going away is to be fresh. As in, so even if I went up to Antrim for a week, you know, uh, Sunday to Monday, or sorry, yeah, Sunday to Friday, I come on Friday night, I might take Saturday, Sunday off, play on my own on Monday and travel Tuesday. Whereas there's this time where I literally play seven, ten days in a row, five, six hours. And sometimes you get to a tournament and you still play terrible. And you'd be like, 
if it had played half the amount or practiced half the amount, I wouldn't have played any worse or maybe played better. So you probably slightly tweak it a little piece. Um, and probably my, my practice was sometimes it mightn't be as much. It's probably better quality. And instead, sometimes when you practice for six hours, you probably did the lineup for two hours beforehand. But obviously, there's an argument for case. Look, did I really need to be playing the lineup for two hours? Or, or would one lineup have done me and then get into the long putting or whatever you were trying to work on? So um, you're always trying to find that balance between do enough that your game is sharp, you're confident in your game. But then also, particularly probably as you get a little bit older, that you're not doing it too much. Because ultimately, if you get beaten first round in the tournament, Nobody cares that you've had two weeks great practice or that you're a great practicer. You know what I mean? So ultimately, it's your, 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 your CV is the ultimate um, reward as such. But obviously, I, I'm certainly a believer in work, working hard. I have in my hand, Fergal, and I will hold it up to the camera, not that anyone else can see it. That is the programme <laughs> for the 1994 World Championship, OK? Which, of course, is yes. your, your debut. And speaking I of, like where this is going. Yeah, well, you will like this because, of course... <laughs> The very first frame, there you are, the home of snooker. You have every right to be nervous, all the rest of it excited. And a lot of people struggle early on. I remember Ken saying he, he went 4-0 down to Steve Davis. He said, he, I spent the four frames just looking around the arena, looking at Steve, couldn't believe I was here. But you are still the only player to make a century in his first ever frame at the Crucible. That's something, isn't it? Yeah, I know. And you, you know it's something because I tell everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and every every year I'd be watching, you know, obviously last year you knocked out, you'd be watching if it was a debutant. And all of a sudden somebody would be on about 70 or so and they'd be sort of like, oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the greatest record in the game as such, but, you know, but it's still a, a lovely one to have. And again, I wasn't even since con- conscious uh, of, in a sense, um, Overly conscious. I just settled, settled in because a few weeks previously I played in golf, so I played really well. And just my concentration from the start of sort of like in a good period of concentration or focus. So it didn't, it didn't, without being in any way binary, it didn't seem like too much of a deal. Obviously, I was aware, you know, very aware of the crucible and everything it means, but it's probably only when you look back, you go, myself, I go, geez, that was pretty good, you know what I mean? <laughs> because you see plenty of people for, and I've been, I've been to crucible other times. And from the first round, our fourth ball, God, I've struggled. And you'd swear it was my first time. But just for a reason at that time, just uh, went so. Hopefully nobody equals it. Yeah. Sam, <laughs> Sam Craigie, I think, was on like 70 or something like that in the yes. first time, wasn't he? Yeah. Yes. I'm, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read out now, Fergal, the, the, the little bit in the programme about you. See if any of this is true. Okay. This is what was said in 1994. It's a very small type, actually. I've just realised I can barely see it. It said, a place in the televised stages of the Embassy World Championship completed a breathtaking week for the young Dubliner. You see, you were a young Dubliner then. Uh, yeah. First came a wildcard entry to the Irish Masters at Goffs, County Kildare, followed quickly by a succession of victories, five in all, and a date with Alan McManus at the Crucible. O'Brien, who occasionally practices with Steve Davis when he's in the UK, defeated, <laughs> defeated Mick Price to complete a week's activity, which was worth more than 15000 to a player who didn't even earn half of that throughout the whole of last season. Breaks of 90, 74 and 57 highlighted O'Brien's performance. So it was only on the pink that he scraped through 10 nines against Marco Sullivan in the previous round. There you are. That's how you got through. Yeah. Anthony Baldsover, 10-2. Mm. Peter Dalvany, 10-4. Tony Chappell, 10-5. Marco, Marco Sullivan, 10-9. Mick Price, 10-4. There you are. So 10-9 ten, ten, on the pink throw. That wasn't like you to be involved in a close finish to a qualifier. <laughs> That's, that's something you ever made a habit of in the future. Yeah, yeah. At least I won that one. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, come on, Fred. Let, let's let's let, let's get to it. Let's get to nineteen. Let's let's party like it's nineteen ninety nine and that amazing week that that you had um, in 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 Plymouth. But tell us about it. What was it like? Um, well, I, I was only asked this actually recently, but the the, the funny thing with that was, um, I because obviously I remember the day April eleventh. I won, mm. but I actually won it in effect on February the 24th because we <laughs> announced the wild cards for the Irish Masters and I didn't get picked. Michael Judge effectively got me, say, the Irish, Irish wild card. Now, uh, Mick still is you know, a great player, always going very well with Mick, but at the time I was ranked, say, 20, he was ranked 60. So I just couldn't fathom how he was picked and I was raging. I remember the day, and as I walked home, it was about a half an hour walk, I was basically writing and rewriting a speech in my head for what I was going to say. It was quite bitter, basically saying, you know, here I am winning a tournament and I'm not even deemed worthy of a place in a tournament in my own country, that kind of. So, anyway, so that was kind of, say, the fuel for it. And then in and around that time, my granddad had died. So a combination of, maybe it was just in a sense, one of, one of those things. So it was obviously, I was very determined. I prepared well. The week before, I had one week qualifier for the Crucible, so that was obviously a good buzz. I'd been up in Scotland, Stirling, practicing. And again, other things, of all weeks, my mom, my dad, aunt, uncle, and cousins, they were coming for the week, because it obviously was down in Plymouth, which is a nice part of the country. So even if I'd lost first match, it didn't matter. They were going to stay for the week. You know, the snooker was nearly, it'd be, if it goes well, great, but if not, they're going to have the holiday. So that very week, I don't think my mum's hardly been to any terms, but that, that week she was going to be there for the week no matter what. I make it all the way. And I got obviously a lot of the matches were close. So I don't know, what do you call it? Destiny, fate. My name was on the cup or whatever way you want to believe. But there was, we said that determination after being overlooked for gops. Um, maybe my granddad dying, maybe if, if that matters, a bit of inspiration. And then just... You know, just just my time because obviously there's plenty of matches that could have easily lost. Peter Ebden rattled the blue in the quarters twice. If you pots that, I'm gone. Other matches were close, so um, it was just a bit bit weird. If you, you probably if it was one that, if it was football, you'd be saying, yeah, his name was on the cup that week, but um, great week. <laughs> but the semi final as well. I mean, you mentioned Ebden there, and you, you know, you really engaged in brinkmanship in that one. And we remember it was actually a really good final, even though it wasn't two of the very top players at the time, you and Anthony. But in the semi-final, you beat John Higgins, who was world champion, world number one, and actually had a really, really good season. So you certainly did it the hard way that week. Yeah, well, I said there'd been a lot of... Because even the first match I played against Anthony Balls, there were four all that got stopped. I mean, to come back later that night for the last frame, I won that. Bradley Jones, again, the next round, 5-4, was 4-1 up. Um, and then even the John Higgins, I think it was 5-4 up and I was way ahead, way ahead and should have really won that frame at the end of a loss on the black, but actually made first chance, made a really good 60 break and um, really good 60 break in the last, which more or less won it. So that was, that was a great, uh, that was a, a great win. And then the finally, you kind of knew because of myself playing Anthony, you could kind of get a sense people were like, oh my God, this won't be great. But uh, it ended up like a great final. First two frames, Anthony had centuries. And ended up a very good match, very high score. And I think Anthony still outscored me by about 300 points because he was such a heavy scorer. But the kind of the scrappy games are kind of nicked. And even the last one went on the black. So uh, it's great, what can I say? <laughs> is it possible to sort of take it in at the time 
the achievement. You know, obviously, you know, you, you win, you get the trophy, you make your speech, the cameras are going off, you get interviewed. Players, I've spoken to players, even who won the World Championship, who say it's only sort of when they get home, maybe in their, their own space, and they realise, oh, actually, I've just won the thing. Was it like that for you? How long did it take to sort of adjust to yeah, winning it? Yeah, it's a little bit... It's a little bit... Unusual with that, yeah. I would again. I wouldn't say in a sense anticlimactic, but it's more just to get your head around it. Because again, mm. okay, it's, it's great that you know after the final there was friends there. You're celebrating your PC, go back. But obviously the next morning then I was to go to get the train from Plymouth to Bristol and fly. So you're sitting on the train on your own. Mm. You know we've got the trophy beside you. When you go back, to, and it was great when I go back to Dublin. Because again, I still had the trophy like in a carrier bag. <laughs> but of course, unbeknownst to me, when I got to Dublin Airport, there was loads of people there. Obviously family and friends there. But I literally, because somebody recorded, but literally when I come through the doors, I'm taking me trophy out of a, like a shopping bag, you know what I mean? <laughs> so that was great. And then as a kind of a, when you see other people and when you see their kind of congratulate her that they were watching it and their kind of star, stories. Uh, no, it, it is great, but I think obviously people still mention you still um, remember it. And maybe in some ways you probably don't remember it enough. You, I think you tend to maybe uh, remember maybe defeats maybe a, a little bit more over your career but certainly you know um, no it was great and I'd love to have that it's just that feeling again not just in a sense uh, it, it's great during the week but you're very much busy it's since business like focused on playing well and your performance and what you need to do and you're very much in a bubble you're not really aware of or I wasn't of you know outside if, if other stuff was happening you wouldn't you probably wouldn't hear about it and you probably wouldn't even um, disturb your consciousness because everything was focused on that term. But when you get back, it kind of it's lovely. But again, I, I was playing with the Crucible within. Uh, that was Sunday, and I think the following Saturday more or Saturday I was playing the Crucible and I lost. And I remember actually when I got beaten ten four by Drago and I played bad. And Anthony Hamilton was just about to start, and I just met him at the dressing room. I just said to him, "The week's a long time at snooker because obviously <laughs> previous Sunday I played well, it was great, and I went to the Crucible. I probably maybe." All those uh, that week, all those kind of other interviews you kind of had to do. That was probably a bit of a draining effect, and I, I play ended up playing like a man who was a little bit tired, to be fair. But uh, no, still fantastic. Yeah, I remember interviewing you when you got back to Dublin, Fergal. So basically, you're saying it was my fault then that you lost at the Crucible because I, I wore you out with my questions. Yes, well, I didn't want to say that. Yeah. The, the amazing thing is, though, Ferg, you, you soared up the rankings now on the back of that British Open win. You finished that season at number 11, which was yeah. remarkable because I think there were only nine ranking events that season. And early on in the campaign, you had actually been beaten in qualifying for three of them. So the fact that you still managed to climb the rankings after that start of the season was remarkable. And obviously then that started your run of a few years in the top 16, which meant that for those few years, you got to play in the Masters, which brings us to 20 years ago this year. And another week that, you know, everyone always remembers 2001 when you so nearly won one of the very biggest titles of all. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, we're just quickly going back to 99. Those first, I lost three qualifiers in about three days and they were actually in. Yeah. So, which was a massive blow at the start of the season. So, as I said, team go back to Plymouth and win the tournament back in Plymouth where it's such a bad start. That was nice. But obviously, yeah, 2001, yeah. Uh, yeah, again, like, again, similar enough. Beat William, Mark Williams six five, which was a good win. Uh, I played well against Ken. I think I beat him six two, six three. Dave Harold, I was five and up and ended up winning six four on the black. And then in the final, it was pretty poor. The first session I was six two up, but I didn't play particularly well. Paul was actually quite poor, to be fair. 
you know, it was nearly, nearly off putting because it was quite poor. But I, I sort of dug in, got a lead, I was happy with the lead. Um, and obviously, look, we're going to talk about the last frame or whatever, but at 7-3, I missed an easy red with the rest, just needing the last red and the black. And if I pot that red and black, I go 8-3. And I think certainly the way he had been playing, it's a big enough a lead, would blow, you know, I'd have probably won 10-4, 10-5, you know, even though it was obviously a big tournament. But I, I lost the frame 7-4, and the whole thing just turned. You know, he, he went nuts. He went ton, ton for 7-6. I remember making 80 for to go 8-6 and kind of thinking, well, look, well, that'll soften your cup a little piece. And he went ton, ton, 80 to go 9-8. And actually, one of the best frames I ever won was the frame at 9-8 and 40 behind. I ended up, I won that frame on the pink horse of the cider. Um, because again, where I was, I was literally coming off the floor. I hadn't put a ball in there in error. I was literally just taking blow after blow. And the crowd were behind him. Um, and to come back and win that frame was easily one of the best frames I've ever won. And obviously, look, I look at everybody knows I chances in the last. Um, yeah, so obviously that was obviously disappointing then, then to lose at the end, of course. Do, do you look back on that now, Fer? Do you think, wow, what a great week that was? Or is it something you still go back to in, in your head and think, if only I'd done this, if only I'd done that, I could have been Masters champion? Um, a, a little piece, I suppose. But you find, uh, you know, even other players, other people talk to it. So maybe in some ways, um, I might be, but some people might be nearly better, know, better known for losing that final rather than winning mm -hmm. the same ratio. And again, at the time, was the Masters a big event? The Masters wasn't one of the Triple Crown. That, that Triple Crown has only, without having to go, was only, as a result <laughs> for the BBC, to have those three major terms. That, but when I played 20 years ago, and I know my stats... You're, speaking our, right. you're speaking our language. I, for, I'm sorry to yeah, you, you, I've been saying yeah. I've been saying this for the last... It wasn't a major. <laughs> yeah. It, it, was, it, yeah. it was... This is why we love Fergal. He tells the truth. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and that's not me being in any way bad because I lost the final, that's what you would say. The Masters is fantastic, I get it. I'd love to play in the Masters again. I'd love to win it. But at that time, I wasn't a major. It didn't have the significance. It's like, in any terms, looking back and saying, oh, actually, now the Dubai Classic is a major. Henry won at 93, that's another thing. It wasn't. And I think the, the BBC, and again, going back when you did the Grand Prix, it was the big, it was the big four, yeah. And obviously they lost that. So the three is as kind of um has a that's more come about because it kind of suits their their program, and certainly the U, the UK would. But I mean, if you said to me before, would you like to win a ranking event of the Masters? I would have picked a ranking event because the ranking mm. event was more prestigious. As in, you know, you'd won a ranking event. So what's the the Masters? is great, it's only the top 16. Since it's only the top 16, it was invitation. Whereas the, the ranking effectively everybody was in. And obviously that subsequently changed. And, uh, you know, probably looking back, you'd probably say if you could win a ranking event of the Masters, you probably would pick the Masters. But it did, it was a big tournament, of course, it always will be, but it wasn't one of the majors. I never, I didn't come away and go, it was only 15 years later you realise, oh, if I'd have won that, I actually would have won a Triple Crown event. But, <laughs> <laughs> no, no more than Paul Hunter and when Paul Hunter won three of them he wasn't back then he wasn't aware he's won three uh, triple crown events Torborn won three in the 80s they weren't they weren't a triple crown event no quite right Absol yeah. absolutely spot on 
Vogel. But I, I, I suppose, look, you won, you're, all, you're all competitive. You want to win every tournament that you, that you play in. But the fact that obviously what happened to Paul, you know, was a tragedy. Did, did that sort of put the whole thing maybe into a bit of perspective for, for you in the end? Yeah, absolutely. And still to, still to this day, of course, I would have loved the Masters. It'd be a triple crown event, you know, exactly. But I mean, all things being equal, you're looking back, the right person won, mm. you know. And again, if I if I ever had any disappointment or uh, regret looking back about it, when Paul died, that went out the window. Because like mm. how, how, how silly was it me being that disappointed in a match I could have, should have won. When the guy was 27, ranked number four in the world, and more importantly, not long married, and he had a one-year-old daughter, you know, so it's a snooker trump, you know, you know, by comparison, my daughter's 20, you know, I've got to see her growing up, it's phenomenal, that's worth a million, million tournaments to me, having my daughter, so you you couldn't be grudged, and again, for what happened to him is tragic in, in in his personal life, but also for his legacy, that he did end up winning three um, and the, the, the Masters Trophy is named after him and rightly so. So I couldn't possibly, possibly begrudge him as disappointed I was at the time. But certainly, certainly when he died, I, I, I don't think um, negative at all about it. It's just obviously people still, you know, once or twice a season, you'd be with another player and you go, remember you lost the Masters or I was watching it on YouTube. How did you play that or why did you miss that? Or that must have been a sickener. You're kind of forced to talk about it, but you know, I still look good memories. Even that night, when I think of that, the final, it was finished, say, 12, but like at five or six in the morning, Paul Hunter was sitting on my lap, you know, <laughs> we're having a chat, you know, talking about the match because a few people come over from Ireland, there was a bit of a party going on. So I've kind of, in some way, fond memories of that. And again, the only thing worse, the only thing worse than losing the final is watching somebody else losing the final. So I had the day, I had the build-up, the excitement, people coming over, playing in the Masters, playing in front of that arena. So at the last shot or two, it didn't go my way, but it was still a great day, a great experience. And God, I'd love to be nine all. And take me, in hindsight, totally the right guy won. And, you know, rightly so. The funny thing about that party you're talking about is we, we were at it as well, Dave, weren't we? Yeah. For some reason, about probably four in the morning, the whole party was uh, joined together singing Flower of Scotland. I mean, this was after a final between an Irishman and an Englishman. I've absolutely, I remember that clearly, but I've absolutely no idea why it happened. But the, the one event, Fergal, that never mind Triple Crowns or anything like that, the one event that has always and will always stand out for everyone as head and shoulders above anything else is, of course, the World Championship. And the year prior to that Masters final, you had your best ever run at the Crucible. You're into the quarterfinals. You know, there are only eight players left at that stage can win the World Championship. When you got up on that Tuesday morning to go out and play Mark Williams in the last eight, what were you thinking? Were you, were you dreaming of it, thinking maybe this is going to be my time and this time next week I could be world champion? Um, I don't overly conscious of, in the sense of, of, of that. I was more probably... I say because you're probably in the in the groove of a of a of a tournament. But I'm not sure where I was totally looking. Well, so I mightn't have been 100 positive as such. I wasn't certainly negative. I was more just I said you're just getting in the groove of playing the next match. But you're kind of to starting when you get the quarters. Obviously, it's cranking up a little piece. And against Mark Williams, I remember it was five three. I should have won the last frame. 
to be four all, but again, it didn't matter. And I just remember coming out clearly, coming out the, at five three, and you know whoever it was, Mike Gandy knocks on your door, and I remember walking because Mark Williams was a couple of dressing rooms away. So I remember walking walking to into the arena, whatever. And Mark Williams' door was open and him and his mates were shouting at people out in the street. And I remember saying, this is like one minute to seven, you know. And I remember saying, that's great. This guy's not on the game at all. This is brilliant. So within a minute or two, we're being introduced for playing. And Mark had two centuries, the first two frames. So being 5-3, but thinking like, you know, he's not at the races, I have him. Or a great chance. He made two centuries, 7-3, and he ended up, he, he pulled away. So that, I'd of course... When he at seven three, when he started asking me a couple of questions, I didn't effectively I didn't respond, and the end up he won it easy enough. But I always remember that. And then now you know Mark Williams, you wouldn't give that a second thought. And if anybody else at a minute to seven was shouting abuse at people at the street, you'd be you know you'd be, you'd be thinking they weren't too confident. But of course, Mark being Mark, once once he broke off, he was in the zone and away playing. I know you would have loved Fergal um, to have won a big team event with Ireland. I, I think I, I have some grasp of how much that would have meant to you. And of course, you were in the uh, Nations Cup final. We know there was a bit of controversy about that, shall we say, with, with the referee. But also, yeah. I mean, you had an amazing week as well in Bangkok um, in the, when the World Cup was played there. It was a, an amazing event that people still talk about now, what an experience it was to be part of that World Cup going on in a snooker-mad city like that. And again, you came so close to winning. I mean, that, that would have been a, been a massive thing, but you were up against a really great Scottish team in the final. And you ran them close-ish in the end, shall we say. Yeah, we ended up winning 10-7. And um, I think, but I think, I think we were behind, but we, we got back. I remember Ken won, Ken got an unbelievable 60-odd clearance in one of the frames against Hendry, which brought us right back in. I think we might have been 8-7 down, but I think maybe the way we'd set up our team, maybe... Preferred to say Ken was playing so well, we kept him last. And maybe that at eight seven down, I think I played a frame, and then Stephen Murphy played. So maybe that eight set, and maybe we were keeping Ken for if it went nine eight or nine all. Or um, whereas obviously ideally, you know, we would have liked Ken to play at least one of those last two. He was playing so well. I think he won six out of seven frames. He played the final. He played tremendous. So maybe that little bit of planning went against. But no, we ran the very very close. Um, obviously there was Henry. Higgins and McManus, I think they were one, two, and six in the rankings at the time. Mm. We did great. I think we were there for 17 days. You know, it was great because we got out of the group, then we beat Canada, and we had a great win against England, of course, which was uh, Sullivan, Ebden, and Bond. And they were kind of, they weren't totally united as such. Um, and we ended up, we beat them in the side of frame. Ken, uh, I think we played Ronnie, and Ronnie needs two snoopers in the yellow. He got them. They needed two snoopers on the brown, and he got them. And I remember he missed like a long brown, but if he possibly stuck on the blue, he'd won. But fortunately, he missed it. And Ken ended up, um, Ken ended up uh, putting a few balls. And I remember, like, so he'd won. So myself and Stephen Murphy, he was more nervous watching, to be fair. We ran backstage um, to, to, you know, c- congratulate Ken. I remember Annie Yates was there, the term director, and she, she kind of had to look around, see that there was no one around, and she kind of joined in the whole with her being Irish. You know, so um, obviously as a term director, she had to be neutral, but with nobody around, she was delighted that we got through. And I said, we acquitted ourselves well in the final, just just a frame or two short. But again, that was a, that was a great time. We, I mentioned your record uh, century in the first ever frame at the Crucible. Of course, you hold another record associated with the World Championship, which is in the qualified, longest ever frame 
two hours, three minutes with Dave Gilbert. I think the, the thing about that is it could only have happened in that frame, probably the whole season. If that's going to happen, it's going to be a decider to get to the crucible. But here's my question. Did you, did you, I mean, you must have known it was a long time, but did you have any idea it was a two-hour frame when you were actually playing it? Because obviously you're just involved in the, in the, in the game, aren't you? Yeah, I wasn't at all. I was totally gross and gross. And I said I wasn't even conscious. Um, I know obviously we say afterwards I lost. Obviously Dave Gilbert wasn't too happy. Whatever. Fair enough. But I wasn't even conscious of playing Dave Gilbert. It was just mm. totally engrossed. And as I said, without giving too much of a backstory. But because um, in previous years in those qualifiers, I'd lost 10-9 on the pink, 10-9 black, 10-9 on a respotted black. Mm. So that walk back from the hotel or from the venue to the hotel getting into bed. There's times I've no recollection of even doing it. You're such, you're so so close and so devastated. So obviously at some point at nine, and bearing in mind I was 6-1 down, made it 6-3, uh, to even get it, and 9-7 to get it to 9-all. But obviously we'd say like the fear factor of losing again and going back to my room and having that massive disappointment at, you know, at some point probably kicked in. So literally, the, obviously that's the then you're now you're trying to control the situation, fearful of losing, and obviously Thank you, shots that took too long or way too long. I, you know, I accept that. But that was probably a byproduct, as you said, of having um, of having uh, having lost previous ones and in that match. And since the balls kind of went a bit scrappy, so uh, there was a lot of safety safety shots. Anyway, it wasn't like even there was long frame, but we kept missing pots. There was a lot of a lot of safety. And even when I won that, I remember being delighted because I qualified for the crucible after the the heartbreak. <coughs> years and I remember clearly remember walk I remember somebody offered me a lift back to the hotel and says no way I said I'm walking here on my own back to the hotel I want to enjoy this walk having one and ringing home talking to my wife and Isabel it was great you know it was only the next morning I went actually to the cruise for the draw and you just got a sense that the goodness effect needed to be taken away a little bit because it was just all about that and I'd come in for criticism from other players all the questions were about that and what had been Thank God, I'm back at the crucible. This is great. Ended up being quite a negative thing, really, and took a bit of um, uh, I would say it felt, it felt a bit the goodness had gone out. Now, probably it got compounded because a few days, like Saturday morning, first match I'm playing Selby, which is a tough match. Well, late Wednesday night, I finished that Thursday, was knackered. Then I'm doing loads of interviews in BBC because I'm playing on Saturday. Friday night, there was that 40th anniversary dinner. So on Saturday, I was kind of fear, a bit fearful, not necessarily playing Mark Selby, just fearful as in I felt a bit tired and drained. And that's subsequently how I played. I would have liked a few more days maybe to recover. But at the time during the match, I was totally engrossed, literally giving it everything. I'd have played there all night if I meant I won. I was buzzing going home. Such a, good, such a contrast to previous years. Ringing home, buzzing. He's coming over. The draw's tomorrow. I went to the Crucible. The next morning to see the draw live to see what playing was buzzing. Mm. Just the next couple of hours, and by the end of the day, any questions <clears> about <throat> qualifying for were all just negative, mm. and it kind of took a little bit of gloss. So waiting years to qualify when I got back there was a bit like, oh, for God's sake. <laughs> I know, Fergal, you, yeah, you really like your golf, and I'm sure you took note of what happened at Kiowa Island a few weeks ago. Phil Mickelson winning a major at the age of 50 which, as we've said, is the age you're going to be next year. Now, you must be looking at that and taking a lot of heart. I know it's a different sport, but to see someone 50 years of age winning a title of that stature in any sport must give you a bit of hope as you continue with your career. 
Absolutely. Uh, and certainly within snooker, I think you probably, because again, there's a time maybe people are in their 40s, you know, you were, maybe 30s, but certainly your 40s you were done. But we've seen, you know, Ronnie and Mark Williams in world titles, Mark King and Anthony Hamilton winning the first. I think that'll apply even when you get into the 50s. So long as you have the application and desire and work, you know, it's still possible. It's not it's not without its challenges. So again, you're always looking for, for insp inspiration, but I think you will see in time, people of, uh, and you know, in their fifties, winning terms. Because again, I said I'm 49, but I don't feel like that. You know, and I said that a lot of the conversations you have are based on because people know you're 49. But if you're still enjoying practice, still happy and confident in your game, you know, obviously there comes a point you can have the best mental attitude and confidence in the world. But there will come a point, I don't know, 60, 70, for all your attitude, you know, your skills are gone. But I, I haven't felt like my skills are gone. Have gone. Or I'm looking at saying, God, I could have, you know, I used to be able to play that 10, 20 years ago. I haven't in a sense reached that stage. You know, as I said, my preparation at times could be could, could have been better and maybe playing a bit too much of my own and probably could play more players more often, those kind of things. But I'm still hopeful going into the season that, yeah, um, you know, as I said, that all things be equal, you, you could have that, that week that you put yourself in the mix. And then when you get there, you know, um, it could be your time again. So definitely, I still have hope. And part of your longevity, I would say, maybe down to all the running you've done over the years, is that something you're still doing? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I just did it this morning, an hour and 20 minutes, uh, about 12 years or so ago. And um, the coach, Colin O'Connor, had been talking to my dad, and he was like, um, you should get your son out and join the running club, whatever. And he's quite persistent with my dad. So eventually my dad was like, look, would you ever join that bloody club or ring him? He keeps annoying me. So I went to club with easily one of the best things I ever did, um, you know. And again, I, I can't can never see myself not not running this and certainly with the club and that because it's so good, regardless of what age I am or what I'm doing. Um, so I suppose longevity-wise, it's definitely been an, adva an advantage if that you're fitter. So for the likes of if you're in your mid forties, it's late at night, you're under pressure, you can play a two-hour frame. And if it went on longer, I would have been okay for it. So that's obviously stands you. And obviously with all the traveling, um, to be able to practice the amount you want, you're fitter. And also like the traveling probably doesn't impact me as much as maybe some of the others are if I, if I wasn't as fit. So it's definitely a great asset as a snooker player. But I said, even if I wasn't a snooker player, if you're going to be fitter with more stamina and more concentration, that's great. But I said, I, I love being at the club and even the likes this morning, meet up with a few lads and the banter and stick and abuse is fantastic. So I'd, I'd miss that in my way. Sean Murphy uh, has spoken about practising with you and how you've sort of helped him maybe become a bit more disciplined. I just wonder what, what practising with Sean, obviously at the moment I understand it's difficult with the COVID situation, but has practising with Sean made a difference to your game in any way? Yeah, I, I, probably, I probably haven't had the bounce, the bounce, because obviously when Sean was coming over Dublin girl, and he's coming over, and I kind of nearly latched on to him, says like, you know, you know, come over, Play in my club. He was a bit unsure. So now, come on, play in my club. Because I thought, geez, that's brilliant playing with Sean. But it probably hasn't had the bounce that I thought or hoped it would. But to be fair, Sean still plays, tends to play the majority of his practice on his own. So even on a normal week, if he was practicing the day beside me, he probably still only played maybe twice a week. Whereas I might have liked maybe four or five. But he, he, he kind of have, the majority would be solo work. Um, but I was still like very good because obviously there's, Obviously, we have practice matches, but there was also times we might play and maybe mid-frame would kind of stop. And I'd say, you know, see this shot here. If I didn't play that shot, what would you be thinking? 
And if you play that, likewise, he might he might play a shot. And say, that's madness going for that. That's such a low percentage. And we'd have those kind of discussions. Um, so you probably argue I could probably do with being a bit more attacking, and he could probably do with you know be a bit more safety play. So it's been good in, good in that way. Um, but then also you be talking in sense of mentality. Sometimes you'd be talking to John, just having a cup of tea or coffee, and he'd just say a sentence. I'd go, that's why the guys won a lot. It's just a mentality or attitude. So even those kind of things. So maybe the way he reads a tournament or going away might be slightly different from from me. Um, and again, to be fair to Sean, yes, we had some chats, and yeah, I didn't, you know, I didn't hold back. I told him exactly what it was. You know, you could practice more and it could be better quality. You know, but I remember probably the last time I gave him the rollicking. The next, the next day he came in, he, again on table his own, he cleared the line up like 10 times in a row, which is kind of what I'm saying. Obviously, they're all easy enough shots, but to have that concentration and discipline. And literally did that for a week or two, and then he went off and went got the, those three finals in a row in China. Mm. So, yeah, I gave him advice. But to be fair, he, he, he wanted to hear what he didn't want to hear. <laughs> and again, if I'm ranked 60 or 70, He's ranked number eight and a triple crown winner. For him to ask advice, or and then when I say it to him, to accept it and go, yeah, because he could have got tickets as well. What would you know? I've won X, Y, and Z. But he took it on board, and they did something about it. Um, so no, fair play for that. But uh, yeah, so hopefully I win a tournament and say, say, be able to say, practice with John Morphy's <laughs> <laughs> Well, of course, you you played. I mean, over thirty years, you've played all the. The modern greats, Steve Davis, Stephen Hendry, Ronnie O'Sullivan, John Higgins, Mark Williams, Mark Selby. The great debate amongst snooker fans that they love to have, and it rages on and on, who's the greatest of all time. You're in a position, having played them, seen them, been around them, to give us an answer. Is there a definitive answer for you? Ronnie O'Sullivan, all day long. Okay. And I'll tell you why, apart from the records, obviously, because the only bar of the world championships, he has the lot. But the way I would even describe it, if you would say... They're similar, both great break builders. Ronnie, particularly in his pump, great long potter, score so heavy, all those records. But the way I always would even describe it is Stephen Hendry, even in his pump, when he was mid-90s, absolute god, if I was playing him and it was level on the colours, or even if he did a slight lead or a black ball game, if it wasn't equal, I even thought I made myself favourite because I could outplay, you know, that was my strength. Whereas if you're if you're level on the colours with Ronnie O'Sullivan and one or two of the balls are safe, it's the other way. At best, we're probably level, and he probably maybe still has the advantage because of safety and manoeuvre. So if you were doing match attack or top trumps, yeah, there's 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 categories they both score ten nines in. But if you get to safe, if you get to tactical, if if Stephen's at seven, Ronnie's at nine plus. If you get to just safety. Hendry's at seven, Ronnie's nine plus. And again, if you gave Hendry at his best a certain safety shot, he'd catch it thin, come off, and leave you maybe this side of the table. O'Sullivan with the same shot. Even if he's close to the cushion, he might jack up cue. He'll play that with a tracer side, still catch it thin, but he'll swing it around and bring it over the other side of the table because that causes you more problems. Hendry didn't, didn't see that. And that's not in any way diminished Hendry because Hendry is definitely number two in my eyes. Because again, I'm not, not surprised, but I know a lot of the players also think Higgins is better than Hendry. And I don't agree with that. You know, I think Hendry was better than Higgins, but 
Um, that's in any way not diminishing, diminishing Higgins because Higgins is definitely three. <laughs> but, but having played them all, and again, even John is as great as a player was, there's more. It felt a bigger deal playing Hendry and it felt a bigger deal playing O'Sullivan. I was always very comfortable playing John, as great as player he was. Playing Hendry and O'Sullivan, you were just a little bit more conscious of who you were playing. If, if, you know, maybe John being a nice guy and socialising more, he just didn't quite have that aura that, that they did. But I mean, having said that Hendry was phenomenal because remember even when he was coming to the end, you knew some of the younger players on tour who might have played and beat him. And he didn't talk to us. They had no idea how good Hendry was. It was phenomenal. And again, I always use the Hendry example. He played a final in the UK against Higgins. It was nine all. Higgins broke off and he got back to his chair and he started laughing because he'd left that red out. And sure, because he knew it was coming. Hendry potted the red from around the back of the black, got on the blue, smashed them up and made. So he knew at nine all after playing one shot what was coming. And Hendry did it. So Hendry was phenomenal. But if you were doing logically, calmly, different departments grading them, there's two areas of Sullivan. You know, Sullivan's not just a great, his use of the cue ball is phenomenal. He never wastes a shot, you know, and he's prepared to gamble, maybe make a mistake in order to swing that right to put you really in, in big trouble. Like, brilliant. And you're talking there about some of the biggest names that have ever been in snooker, Ferg. Now, Dave, correct me if I'm wrong here. But I think, Fergal, you retired two of the <laughs> biggest names there have ever been because I think you were the last professional opponent for both Steve Davis and Alex Higgins. Is it, that's right, isn't it, Dave? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. 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 And so, I mean, that, that must have been amazing because obviously growing up in the 80s, there was that famous rivalry between the two of them and you ended up being the last pro opponent for both of them. The match against Alex was in the Irish Professional Championship in Dublin. And as ever, you had a good quote for us after the match. You said, I was just glad I didn't get hit. <laughs> now, what, 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 I mean, you know, it wasn't the first time, obviously, you'd come across Alex. But as an Irishman growing up, you, you would have been very aware, as we all were, of, of the legend of Alex Higgins. And we know what he was like on the table and what he was like off the table. But what are your memories of, of dealing with him and playing against him and knowing him to whatever extent you did over the years? Yeah, well, first thing I said, as a kid, I absolutely idolised Alex. And when I was, um, when he won in 1982, I remember... I went up to my room and did a big poster, you know, like Alex Higgins, world champion, and coloured it in or whatever. So I loved Alex. Um, and actually, in 94, the Crucible, we're talking the first time, the day before it, I was at the Crucible, I was actually practising, and Alex came in. And I actually had a couple of frames with him. But I remember actually it was weird. So that was probably the fun. I hadn't played him before. Or I'd seen him briefly at terms, but that was the first time I certainly had a couple of games. And, but I remember he had, had a maple cue. Well, you know, like on an Ash Cube, there's those kind of like grooves or chevrons, whatever. Because you don't have them on maple, but with kind of like a red pen, he kind of drawn them himself. <laughs> Which I always thought was a bit more. But again, with three or four frames against him, I think, not that it matters, but I won the most very, as I said, and the next day I played well, I was comfortable. But obviously, towards that, the end of the Irish professionals, and I forgot that was the last match. I knew it was Steve Davis's last match. When I played him, and after I'd beaten him, I was aware, like, you know, I was able to say, um, I was aware or conscious that the, that was probably it for Steve. So it was very, there was no gloating or um, great delight in winning the such because I knew the significance for him. I forgot that, that was Alex's last match, but I remember earlier, because I remember the night before I'd been saying to the other lads, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to smash Ferdinand up and beat him and whatever. <laughs> and again, in a frame, in the first frame too, there was some incidents with the, ref, with the referee 
the pink mm-hmm. gone back on its spot or something. There was some controversy. And of course, Alex made a bit of an issue of it. And he said it to me, and I was sitting in my chair. A, I, I didn't see it or couldn't see it. It was too far away. And he said something to me and I didn't. And then a four nil up at the interval, he's come over to me and kind of approached me. And then I just got out of his way and went in to my dressing room and such. But like he was outside, he was having a smoke break. And he was effing him, my mom and dad and all, he was effing him a lot. And he actually, going to the toilet, happened to go by him. And he basically came into my face and he said, he should have said something, but he didn't. He's not, he's not, a, he's not man enough to say something or something. And if it had been another person, you could have seen how a fight would have broke out. We're going to get away with him. And to be fair, there was others there going, shut up, Alex, Fergal wouldn't do anything like that or whatever. <laughs> and if I won't fight, no, but it was, it was an uncomfortable experience. But however, to be fair, a few months later um, in Northern Ireland, that week I got to the final, he was there. And I remember word came, we're in the, we're in the players' end, word came, Alex is here. And I remember clear as in, Henry and Davis bolted out of the practice. <laughs> wanted nothing to do with Alex. And I wasn't overly keen because the previous match we played, you know, wasn't ideal. And I, I was coming out of the practice and he was coming, and I kind of, all of a sudden, the worst thing I want, I bumped into him. I'm obviously a little bit afraid. And to be fair to him, he stopped and he says, I just want to say sorry for the last time we played. And I was like, well, that, that was class. Because again, like anybody can make a mistake or but he'd apologise. And subsequently I told people that, and they were like amazed because we're like, I, you're probably the only person Alex Higgins ever apologised to. <laughs> and again, yeah, I'm not taking any great pride or delight in beating him. Look, he was, it's 2007. He's long, long past his prime. So I don't count it as I beat Alex Higgins because that'd be, you know, that would be very unfair on him. But um, it was just, it was even at that stage, you know, his career is over, the Irish professionals. And against me, and I'm not doing anything wrong, and we still could have had like a big proper argument, you know. Maybe when he said to those lads uh, the night before that I'm going to smash Fergal up and beat him, he didn't necessarily mean on the table. But <laughs> yeah. um, an- another former world champion from this island, Fergal, uh, that I'd like to talk to you about because uh, there have been three of them, and one of the others is Ken. And, you know, you've been really good friends with them throughout your careers. You've practiced together a lot. And I think that the two of you have actually probably helped each other along the way a bit as the two Dublin lads who have been there for 30 years now. Yeah, absolutely. And there kind of has been, uh, as we do always get, get on, it sense very well, but always, it sense even practice, when we practiced, it was always intense. It was always a big, I'm sure he'd said the same, but always to me. So if you played him two best of 11s and you lost a score at the end of the day, like, you know, I'd go home, I'd be raging, you know, and I couldn't wait for tomorrow to play again. And likewise, if you beat Ken, you knew the next day he'd come, you know, all, all systems. So to beat him one day was was good and tough, but to beat him then the second day was was really good. So it was always very good to practice with him, again, very, um, very competitive. Always got on well, but I mean, once we played, it was never word spoken. <laughs> you know, and then obviously, mm. I remember plenty of times going around when we had the club and Jason's. And fair was great, you know, we'd be knocking lumps out of each other. And then we'd go around the corner to his mom's and she'd have soup and sandwiches made. And, you know, we'd be having a great laugh and chat for an hour. So and then you'd go back around and it was like it was like going to war again. But, um, uh, you know, it's a great, great to practice. And we've always had that good competitive. And again, even then in recent years, some, some of our best times really together, even though we haven't performed particularly well, the last few years we've played the World Cup. Um, and again, we always, we always go away thinking, we, this format, 
with our experience and because it's usually scrappy frames, we must have a great chance, you know. And of course, we haven't really done well, but uh, I still kind of always feel that the pair of us in that format, you know, it kind of suits us, but we haven't had the results to back it up. Then apart, also away from playing the matches, together just having great laugh and great stories. So, um, yeah, no, been, that's been very good. And as we uh, mentioned, uh, two of the three world champions from the island of Ireland, Fergal, we'll mention the other one, Dennis. Everyone's got a story about the 85 final and their memories of it. I guess you, you've probably got some tale about it as well and where you were watching it and what you remember of that night. Yeah, he, if Dennis is listening, he won't like this. <laughs> Clearly remember. Uh, oh, no, no, actually, sorry, no, Dennis will like this. Sorry, it's Steve, it's Steve that won't. I clearly remember sitting on the couch with my man and Steve Davis was playing not just the black but other shots and the two of us were clearly gone miss 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 <laughs> and then delighted when he did miss and obviously Dennis part of the part of the black so uh, no I was yeah Dennis would like to hear that but for Davis and I ended up I ended up subsequently I started a career really appreciating Steve and thinking how great he was so but at the time no um, I think most people were cheering for Dennis I certainly was we're going to uh, we're going to end Fergal with a fun quiz. Let's see how fun it is. I'm going to bring back the program from 1994 because all the players were asked to fill in a questionnaire. Okay? Yeah. And I'm going to I'm going to give you um, Michael can play along as well. I'm going to I'm going to give you right. I'm going to give you three clue, clues and you've got to see if you can guess the player, okay? So they're top 16 players, okay? So it's the top yeah. 16 seeds. Um, play along at home. So we're going to start. I'm going to read you three clues. Let's see if you can discover the plot. This one I think you will get because there's a big clue in it. So, favourite music, R.E.M., Phil Collins and Dire Straits. Fear, Heights. Secret Wish, to have played rugby for Wales at Cardiff Arms Park. Terry. Terry Griffiths. Is the, they, they get harder. We're just easing you in. Uh, let's move on. Do you, want, do you want to play along as well? I've no Yeah, yeah. Right. I'm, so, I'm pretty good at my stats, but Michael's different, different ball game altogether. Well, it's not really stats. <laughs> it's, it's just sort of weird, weird, ans weird, an weird answers. Okay, so yeah. one. I'm, 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 quite, I'm quite keen on those as well. But anyway, go on. Here we go then. We we did do this last week with the, with the year before, but a lot of the answers seem to have changed. Anyway, favorite uh, favorite uh, music: The Smiths and Pink Floyd, Pets, Three Cats, Secret Wish to play cricket at Lords. Well, we're, we're, that's very similar to to what we had last week, isn't it? It's, got, it's the same person, surely. It's Neil, isn't it? It's Neil Folds. As I say, it gets harder. Yeah. He was a cricket fan. Okay, we go back to Fergal. This is the 1994 World Championship programme, the top 16. Uh, okay, favourite music, U2. Favourite TV, Only Fools and Horses. Pets, a goldfish. So we got, <laughs> I have to work off a goldfish. That, we've that's got, it. We've got you two, only fools and horses, and a goldfish. Hendry. 1994. It's not Hendry, so I'm going to pass it across. Yeah. yeah. I think Hendry is a big U2 fan, so I was thinking it might be him. A goldfish. And Ken wasn't in the... Ken's a big U2 fan, but he wasn't in the top team. Uh, no, he would, he would have been by then because he, he played Alex in the first round, actually. Um, but I don't think it's Ken either. I just can't imagine Ken having a goldfish. I don't know. There's a sentence I never thought I'd say. Well, you're not allowed another guess, but he's not Alan anyway. So. <laughs> 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 yeah. 
<laughs> I'll, I'll go for the, oh no hang on oh yeah I'll go for the other Alan Robert do the answer is Ken Doherty Ken had a goldfish. oh no Ken had a goldfish oh, no. so that's uh, what's that goldfish okay here we go uh, I don't know whose turn it is but uh, they, they do say a lot of Ken's commentary goes round and round in circles so you know it's no, appropriate he had a goldfish no need for that didn't mean that right. really but right. like, yeah yeah sorry right. here we go so I don't know I'm not sure whose turn this is but anyway it's Fergal's turn now I think yeah uh, well, it can't be because that was that was his turn. Oh yeah, okay, so it's yeah. mine then. Oh yes, <laughs> okay. Music again, you two. TV favorite TV, Blackadder. Secret wish to visit a catwalk fashion show. Hendry, <laughs> hang on, it's not your turn, Fergal. Hang on, Ferg, come on. <laughs> I know you're competitive, but you know, come on, yeah, exactly. you've got to play by the rules. If, if he had been that quick off the mark against Dave Gilbert, it might have been a different story. Um, so we, we, we've got you two. Fashion show, yeah. Like and a catwalk fashion show. Is that why you said meow? Because catwalk. Um, I have no idea, sir. It, well, it can't be him because he wasn't in the top 16, but it'd be the sort of thing Tony Knowles would have said. But And also, you would have thought, just as a, as a side issue, if you were a top 16 snooker player, you know, I, I wouldn't imagine it would be that hard to get tickets to a catwalk fashion show. Well, I suppose it depends, oh, I've, I've had... depend, depends where, where you are in the top 16. But anyway, the sooner you answer, the sooner we can get, get, this, get this over and done with. The sooner <laughs> this is over with. Yeah. 1994, oh, top 16, I don't know. Darren Morgan? <laughs> not, it's not Darren Morgan, so we can pass it across to Fergal. Are you going to stick with the answer you go, Fergal? Stephen Hendry, yeah. The answer is Stephen Hendry. Yeah. What? Yeah. Hey, well, hang on a minute then. So Stephen Henry, one of the biggest sports stars in Britain at that time, surely if he wanted to go to a fashion show, it wouldn't have been that hard to arrange. Well, I don't know, but that's the that's the answer. Move. Hey, we'll move on. Okay. That, that time, actually, that, that time I beat him at Goffs in 94, I remember afterwards you go to the meal over and he was wearing this horrendous black and white check jacket, but I think it was some Versace. I think he paid two or three grand for it. It was horrendous. <laughs> so at the time, he was obviously rated himself a bit as a, as a player. <laughs> well, he was a bit of a player, in fairness, but anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Now, for, for the, so we, we pass back to Fergal, okay? So three clues here. I remember the top 16 in 1994. Favourite TV, Postman Pat. Secret wish to meet Postman Pat. Fear that Postman Pat is not a real person. <laughs> <laughs> I know this one, actually. They're great answers, to be fair. Um, uh it's a, yeah, it's something like Dominic Down would have said. Um, 19... He was never in the top 16. True, true, I know. Yeah. Um, who's being smart? Uh, I think it would be smart. John Parrott. It's not John Parrott, so the, the question passes. Yeah, well, I, I think this is a pretty easy one because as we discussed last week, th th this was someone who always, you know, treated these questionnaires with a certain degree of contempt so i'm assuming it was steve it was steve davis yeah you can, yeah. Imagine, you can imagine how many questionnaires steve was asked to do at that time we'll do two more and then we'll we'll let you go Fergal. um so the, uh, so mike michael this is yours okay mm -hmm. three clues here uh tv favorite tv nothing in particular <laughs> my worst um secret wish to have a less pressurized occupation fear <laughs> This is my favourite answer of them all. Fear, tax. <laughs> wow. Fear is tax. 
I, I, I just have a feeling when you tell, if I get this wrong, when you tell me the answer, I'm going to think it's, oh, yeah, it's someone I should have thought of. Uh, I'll tell you what, it's someone who I mentioned before and who actually got to the semi-finals of that championship. Would it be Darren Morgan? It's not Darren Morgan, so he passed to Burgle. Mm. Who do you think is afraid of tax? Ronnie? It's not Ronnie, it's James Wattenaar. <laughs> <laughs> My word. Uh, we'll, we'll do one more and then, yes. Uh, where, where should we... Okay, right. I, I don't know whose turn this is. It must be Fergal's, I think. Uh, it's Fergal's, yeah. Yeah. Uh, as you can tell, Fergal, we don't really plan these things particularly. Yes, I got that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, favourite music, Soul, in particular, Luther Vandross. Uh, <laughs> favourite TV, have I got news for you? Secret wish, to see a horse I own win the champion hurdle. Uh, I don't think Evden wasn't in the top 16, but I know he's in the top. I guess John Parrott again. The, an- the answer is John Parrott. Congratulations. Mm. I'm not sure who won, but the, but here's the thing, okay? Be- just before I we... I think Stilker was the real winner. <laughs> <laughs> here's the thing, okay? The qualifiers were also asked not quite the same questions, but similar ones. So, Fergal, can you remember the answers you gave to the following questions? Favourite music, favourite TV, and pets? I don't have a pet, so that's probably what I said. Yeah. Elvis? Correct. And favourite TV? TV 94. I probably was uh, a big cliche to say only fields as well. That is correct, yeah. Well, good, good, really. Good, wow, good, good knowledge of yourself. Yeah, <laughs> well, I, 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 I've, got, I've got to say, <laughs> yeah, indeed. It's ours as well as regular listeners of the podcast yeah. will know. But I, I've got to ask you as well, Fergal, it's something we touched on and we did want to come back to it later on. I mean, there was that era, I always say that back in, you know, when you and I were growing up, that snooker was probably as big in Dublin as it was anywhere in the UK. There were so many clubs, so many tables. Everyone seemed to be playing. And obviously a few really good players emerged from that. You mentioned Mick earlier, people like Stephen O'Connor, Stephen Murphy, but obviously yourself and Ken, by far and away the best. Now, as we've discussed in the past, that has completely dried up now. But a big part of the problem is in Dublin. There's hardly anywhere left to play. Yeah, absolutely. Again, when I was a kid, like watching in the 80s or whatever, I could probably walk to four or five different clubs from where I was. And then if you could jump down, well, the bike or the bus, there was probably another four or five not too far away. And that's even without going into the city centre in Dublin. And again, so like in Dublin, in the city centres, which is probably about less, th- less than a mile radius, there was five snooker clubs like in the city centre on O'Connell Street around to, uh, to Capel Street. So again, and that's part of the problem now of the sort of distractions um, so between more TV channels and Netflix and computer games. So, but if a young Philip 12, 13 sees Snooker on the TV and likes it and is interested in playing, says to his dad, you know, come on, we go for a game. All of a sudden, if the nearest club is 15, 20 miles away, as opposed to one around the corner, that's to- that is totally different. And that's definitely been a problem. I think over the years then, the... Um, the, pro- the price of property in Dublin in a sense mm. for snooker because if you have a snooker club obviously 16, 20 tables that's a very big size so even if you're that snooker club was busy and the tables going 12 hours a day if you if you sold that and people could put in 10, 20 apartments you're going to make far more money so rather than working each day why not sell the property for 2 or 3 million I just said, particularly during the Celtic Tiger um, 
and that's enough. There's less and less people to, to play, and then uh, that's just um, a byproduct. I think the smoking ban, you know, Port Snooker, little piece as well. Not having the Irish Masters anymore on Goffs. Mm. It just there was a general sense that snooker had come and gone. It was of its time. You know, it was less people to play because people still talk fondly of Goffs and playing in the little club. And I used to watch it at a own, but I, that is a problem that if you're a young kid and you want to go to your local club, there might be a local club, so you're probably less likely to do it. And again, a lot of the players that seem to be coming through either have a table in the house or built one out the back garden and those kind of things. So you're just not getting the, the amount of people playing. So as a result, you know, if one in every thousand people that play is a really good player, you know, if you're not even getting a thousand people, it's getting far harder to get like potential stars. Yeah, I know Aaron Hill has a, a, a table at the bottom of his garden. It's probably just as well you never had that because you'd probably never even have slept. If it was that easy for you to go out and practice, you would have been there <laughs> an eight by all hours. Yeah. Oh, you had an 8x4, did you? Oh, yeah. I, when I was eight for Christmas, I got an 8x4 and I went in to like the, what is the dining room. So I played in that day and night from about eight till I was 14 or something. So I, I, I never would change. I don't know how, because we even used to play table tennis over it. Well, I never had to recover the cloth or anything. But, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, whereas nowadays most people have a, tend to have a table in the house or at the backyard. We're gonna we're gonna wrap up, but I have just noticed I've got this look, looking through this program, and this is the real bombshell to end on. In 1994, Peter Ebden, he, he, they asked him, "Do you have a pet?" He said, "Yes, I have a lovebird called Fifi." So Peter Ebden <laughs> in 1994 owned a lovebird called Fifi. If we've learned nothing else over the last hour, we've learned that. Yeah. Fergal, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. We could, have, we, could, we, 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 we could have talked all day. And uh, congr- uh, congratulations on 30 years on the tour and good luck for the coming season. It's not too long, is it, till, till you're in action? Yeah, um, yeah, for, for three weeks, so July 20th is the first one. So I'll be expecting a cake then, lads, when I see you then. <laughs> <laughs> we are uh, proud members of the Sports Social Network. You can check out the other podcasts. You can email us. Thanks for the emails. We complained last week we didn't have any. We've had a lot, and of course, churlish as we are. We haven't read any out, but uh, we will, when we return, <laughs> uh, we will go through them all. So thanks for sending them. You can email us, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. That's snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. We're going to take a, a short break of a few weeks just to uh, recharge the batteries, and we'll be back for the new season. Uh, once again, Fergal, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you. Cheers, Thank, thank you, you, David. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We will be back after the break. Sports Social Podcast Network. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.